Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, uh, Acts 19 is where we're at tonight as we go on through the book of Acts. Boy, it seems like just yesterday we started this and now we're uh, almost to chapter 20, you know, and it ends at 28. Uh, so moving right along, I think we're in Paul's third missionary journey now. But one of my favorite things to do is to help people get the rest of the story uh, about Jesus and how they can become born again believers. So there's your first fill in the blank, the word story. People often have an incomplete view of Jesus. And when you get out there and interact with people as a coach at a public school or in your interactions with others as you go along, uh, it doesn't take long to know that people have all kinds of wild and crazy ideas about Jesus. And one of the great things we get to do is help clear those things up. Some people have only known him as a cuss or curse word in their family growing up. That was true in my home. You know, that's the only way I heard the name of Jesus was, you know, something about a popsicle stick or whatever, you know. Others around the world have never heard his name at all. Um, most frightening, many churches and pastors present an unbiblical view of Jesus and distort the message of His saving design. Uh, and it happens on both the conservative and the liberal ends of the spect spectrum. And I hate to even use the word conservative because this guy was just nuts. But you remember the guy a few years ago, he's dead now, Reverend Fred Phelps of Westboro Baptist Church, you know, and how he'd go and picket at people's funerals, funerals of soldiers. He'd be talking about how God hates and he'd use a slur for uh, gay people and stuff like that. And just very, very sad. But, you know, he was never accepted by any Baptist denomination, but for years led his church to present a warped view of God's judgment and never enough about Jesus' desire to save uh, repentant sinners. Weren't a whole lot of John 3.16 signs going on out there, you know, as he did it. But on the other side of the spectrum is the story of what happened when uh, the poet T.S. Eliot converted from Unitarianism, a cult that rejects the Trinity, to Anglicanism, which was the home of uh, C.S. Lewis's faith and things like that. The liberal priest at that Anglican church would have let, he said, hey, you got baptized Unitarian church, which is a cult, you know, and I'll let that stand. But T.S. Eliot understood he was now accepting the biblical view of everything, including that God is a triune God, and he wanted to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that did happen. But in the early days of the Christian faith spreading, numerous incomplete forms of Christianity were spreading. And today we'll see that one of the things the apostles did as they traveled was to find these groups and do what? Set their thinking straight. And we get to do that as we talk and interact with people as well. Uh, you know, it's uh, been very exciting now twice, uh, two different times getting to teach pastors in Africa, you know, and them ask questions. And they don't have near the resources I have, you know, and what a great blessing it is to be able to help them put things into place so their faith is complete and they can preach and teach the scriptures uh, rightly well. Um, so Acts 19, we're going to see Paul do this in Ephesus, verses 1 through 10. And it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus 
And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Uh oh. <laughs> and he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Well, into John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. Then Paul said, Well, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, under the authority of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So they spoke in known languages and preached. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, about God's rule in a person's life. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. It might say, yours might say the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia, Asia Minor, heard the words of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greek. So my title is, When Religious People Get Saved. People had a form of religion but didn't have the power thereof. Well, verse 1 lets us know Paul's desire to minister in Asia Minor was finally realized, is finally realized. He had finally got there. And we remember back another time where we saw that he wanted to go to Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit forbid him, kept redirecting him. He wound up in Europe. And now he's finally getting to minister there. It was one of the places he wanted to minister. It's his third missionary journey. Ephesus had 300,000 inhabitants. That's a big city today. It was a huge city then. It was the capital city of Asia Minor, its most important commercial center. Thanks to a large harbor, it grew wealthy on trade. And let's see, I say this every uh, little bit when we talk about Ephesus, but one of the seven wonders of the world was there. It was a temple. Can you remember who the temple was for? Diana, good, star of the day over here. A couple people said it at the same time, so you get to teach her star of the day. Uh, the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, and of course, uh, another time we talked about how, unfortunately, it involved uh, having priestesses that were really just prostitutes, you know, and that was part of their worship of Diana uh, was to commit lewd and illicit acts uh, with the prostitutes, both male and female prostitutes. Paul must have known that it could be a place the gospel could really branch out from if a solid church was established there. And we've talked before about Paul's strategy. He, you know, he knew in that first century, uh, you know, uh, for the gospel, uh, to really make an impact, you had to get to those big cities and put a church there, and then that church would be responsible for reaching the medium-sized cities that would be responsible for reaching, reaching the small cities and the towns and things like that. And so almost everywhere Paul went was, uh, you know, urban in its day, you know. And I so appreciate, uh, I'm wearing the shirt here. Uh, when you get free stuff you like to wear, especially when it's nice as this, but this is a North American Mission Board shirt. And... Um, I so appreciate the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention's emphasis on send cities. Not send cities, that's Las Vegas, but Las Vegas is one of the places we're talking about. Send cities, S-E-N-D. And we have made major efforts uh, to plant churches that will plant churches in those urban centers. 
and it is rocking uh, those urban areas for Christ. Um, and our state convention, the SBCV, Southern Baptist Conservative Virginia, we've taken a special interest in what's going on in the D.C. area and all the way up to Montreal. And there are, uh, Montreal's gone from having almost no Baptisty type churches to having uh, over a dozen in the last few years because of this multiplication movement. Okay, so back in Acts 16.6, we read that Paul had wanted to go there on his second journey, but was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Let's turn back to chapter 18 and read 19 through 21 again. It says, And Paul came to Ephesus and left them there, Aquila and Priscilla, the, the power couple. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but look, took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. He, he uh, was keeping a vow that he'd made. Uh, probably the vow of the Nazarene, Nazarene right? The Nazarene, Nazarene vow, yeah. Uh, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Ephesus. So he'd wanted to spend more time there, uh, but he had to go on. But we know that he'd wanted to go to Asia Minor. And so how long had Paul's initial desire been delayed by the Holy Spirit? Three years, three years. You know, sometimes we've got something we want to do for God, and we say, boy, it would be neat to do that for God. And we don't understand why God makes us wait, you know? Well, in the waiting, we learn to worship Him and, and truly rely on His timing also. It grows our faith. It grows our character. And if it is of the Lord, He'll either put us there, put somebody, somebody better for that situation than us there. And I think about um, the Good News Club, right? You know, we wanted to go 2020, uh, 2021, and uh, not back till 2022, and not as many numbers this year as we had before. But boy, it was a great six weeks. I didn't get there very much, but what a great six weeks. And uh, 30 kids came to know Christ. Um, and praise the Lord. One of the coolest things we were part of this year as a church. Well, Paul waited three years for God's timing on the matter. In these days of people happen to have instant gratification, it's neat to see how Paul modeled for us how good it can be if we obey God's instructions and wait on the Lord. Fill in the blank is wait when we wait on the Lord. Um, sometimes, God's got to slow us down a little bit so we can wait on the Lord. That's why some of the godliest people you meet and the neatest saints you meet are older, uh, and uh, they finally learn the lesson of waiting. They're better prayers because they've learned how to wait on the Lord. They're better uh, when they speak because they've learned to wait on the Lord. They get better advice because they become wise in the Lord, and that's some of you guys, all you guys. Um, and so, uh, you know, think, think about that. You know, I think about Jacob. Um, Jacob, early on as a young man, before he went up to get himself a bride or two or four, how uh, <laughs> that worked out, two wives, two handmaidens and 12 children, 13 uh, with Diana later. Um, but uh, he, uh, Dinah, Dinah later, um, he, um, as a young man, he said, God, if you bless me, I'll tithe. <laughs> and then he had all these years that were tough and stuff like that. And had that wrestling match with God. You remember the one where he said, okay, God was so impressed with his tenacity in that wrestling match and that he would not let, go God, let God go until he blessed him, uh, that um, he changed his name to Israel. And uh, the blessed name 
uh, and plan that God had continued to go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his 12 sons after him. He was in on the covenant of his forefathers and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but God broke his hip during that wrestling match, you know, and he limped the rest of his life. And uh, after that, as he talked to God, he'd say, God, I, I won't just, you just don't have 10%. You got 100% of me, you know, <laughs> and the rest unfolded after that. Well, Psalm 34, 4 says, 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so that happened in Ephesus to Paul. He finally got to minister in Asia Minor. Well, the end of verse 1 tells us Paul found some disciples. And what are some other words that we use to describe a disciple? A disciple is also a what? Elder. Uh, well, elder. elder or maturing. Let's say maturing using that elder word. One of the words is a disciple could also be called just a learner. That could be a way to translate that same word. Sometimes we would talk of followers of Jesus. You know, he's leading and we're following. So a disciple is one who follows, one who learns, one who's applying. Um, it doesn't always mean Christian, though. Um, in the Gospels, in addition to describing disciples of Jesus, it was used of disciples of the Pharisees, but they weren't Christians. Disciples of John the Baptist, we see these ones were not yet Christians. And we also see some people that uh, were kind of called disciples in John 6, but they walked away. They stopped following Jesus when they understood His claims on their life that uh, they couldn't just taste. They had to be all in and swallow, you know, and, and be all in with the Lord. Well, verse 3 lets us know that these disciples were followers of who? John the Baptist. And they were followers of his early teaching who had followed his call to repentance, but had not yet met the one he had pointed to, Jesus. Now, I don't know where these guys were at all those years. Maybe they just were huddling around, uh, you know, uh, maybe after this exciting time around the Jordan River, they went back to Ephesus or whatever. But they had missed it, you know. They perhaps knew that he had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world uh, about Jesus, but they didn't know much else. And so they're lacking the rest of the story. And somehow they made their way back to Ephesus. This past week I mentioned the uh, Chinese church, you know, where the fella fell in a well upside down. And he prayed to every God he knew and then said, God of the Christians, if you get me out of this, I'll follow you. And uh, the guy came along, pulled him out, and he said, Well, it must be the God of the Christians then. And so with what little information he had about Jesus, they would meet and, and uh, pray. And whenever they'd pray, they'd go upside down on their heads, you know, the church that prayed upside down. Missionaries saw that and told them the rest of the story. So Paul's got to do something like that here. And, you know, here they are in Ephesus, but we've, we know from history that followers of John the Baptist without Jesus existed all the way into the second century. Well, I hope they're not out there somewhere right now, you know, 2,000 years later, passing it along, living and dying without knowing the Lord. Um, there are some people who follow a preacher but never come to know Jesus. Others become part of a cult that's got Jesus in the name but don't come to know Jesus, like the Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints that is a mockery of the biblical portrait of Jesus. A false version of Jesus, false view of the way of salvation. Well, in verses 2 through 5, Paul's teaching helps these religious people get saved. Now, I love how Paul uses questions to reveal their lostness. Uh, here's one for you today. We say, uh, it's a good thing to say to people. Uh, talk to somebody and say, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And if people will 
think for a minute and give you an answer, you listen for that answer. Uh, because many people will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. Uh, I hope he'd let me in, but I don't know that he let me in. You know, I guess I don't know what I'd say. And then you share, well, can I share with you how the Bible answers that question? And if you have some of these Steps to Peace with God tracks we've put out at the Opportunity Desk and other places, uh, whenever we forget to, just tell us, we'll put more out, you know. Um, but you can use that right there with them and walk them through uh, the uh, Steps to Peace with God. But when you don't have one, it's still the same uh, things you say. God's got a purpose. He wants you to live forever with Him. But mankind's got a problem. Our sin has separated us from God. And we're rebels against Him, and He'd be right to judge us. Well, the third thing is, but God's made a provision. And you talk about Jesus and why He came and His uh, ability to save us, His credentials to save us, and the fact that He did go to the cross and die for our, our sins on the cross. And then the fourth thing in any good gospel presentation is man's got to decide. You know, a man's got a decision to make. And Billy Graham's magazine was called The Hour of Decision, like the prophet saying that you're in the valley of decision and a decision's before you. And so uh, many people today give that inadequate answer to that question showing they don't understand their sinful condition or how glorious what Jesus did on the cross was. Um, these particular disciples here, we read that they understood that they needed to turn from sins. They experienced a baptism of repentance. They just didn't fully understand what and who they were to turn to. So they were always focusing on what they weren't supposed to do, but they hadn't embraced the one to follow uh, in this life. And so they didn't understand grace. So Paul asked a second question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And many have pointed out that their answer shows they were lost. You know, we don't know anything about that. But Paul's question shows that the apostles understood true believers do receive the Holy Spirit the moment they believe. Um, and we could point to a lot of scriptures on that. Ephesians 1 says, having believed, verse 13 and 14 says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's your guarantee of your future inheritance. Romans 8 and other places talk about the Holy Spirit of Christ being inside you. But the one I really like to turn people to is John 7. So let's turn there. Because it really it shows us the difference between pre-Christ and post-Christ uh, as far as being a believer in God. Uh, John 7, verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, we learn that in verse 2 of chapter 7. But he says, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this he spake, spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Jesus would receive. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Ooh. So what a great promise that after Jesus is glorified, those who believe will have the Spirit. They'll be, uh, have the Spirit inside, which is pretty cool uh, to think about. Rivers of living water. Um, so Paul presents the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and they were saved. So they had been clinging to this early version of what John the Baptist had taught them, but they hadn't heard the rest of the story, and now they have. 
And John the Baptist had taught that the one that the Spirit would one day baptize God's people. Remember, he said, I baptize you with water, but one coming after me, he'll be able to baptize you with fire. He'll be able to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, you know. And that's what that means. That's why it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that all believers experienced him. So when they understood Jesus, they turned to him and they were baptized. Now, uh, one thing just to clear up, because uh, there are a couple denominations out there, and they stress that because of these verses in the book of Acts, you should be baptized in the name of Jesus uh, by itself, name of Jesus Christ by itself. And of course, uh, we think about Christ's great commission where he himself told us that we're to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnicity and baptize them in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so it's unfortunate that people that don't know what to do with uh, narrative literature, like in the book of Acts, it's the book record of what happened. Uh, they take that and they make it fight against a clearly revealed doctrinal passage like the Great Commission, you know, in there. Um, instead of having them complement each other. Uh, and then they tell everybody after them, if you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and nothing else was said, then you got a problem. And it's like, well, when you baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus' name is in there as part of the triune God that he is. And that's what Jesus told us to do, right? You know? So, but and nevertheless, there are some that push that. And so it's worth uh, uh, just getting, spending a moment talking on that like we have. Uh, and reminding us that name communicates authority, right? Who gives the authority to be baptized uh, as a believer? It's Jesus himself. It's his gospel offer that when received gives the right, the authority, the privilege and power to actually be baptized, right? So um, people make the same mistake with praying, if you pray for anything in my name, I'll do it. And they say, well, if you ask for what you want and pray in Jesus' name, he has to do it because he said so he'd do it. And they're missing out there that name communicates authority. When you say, when you pray for something in the name of Jesus, you're saying, God, this is what I think should happen, but I'm submitting it to your authority, to your name, and I'm giving you the right to veto it with your powerful name, you know. Uh, the president can veto stuff. Jesus can veto stuff. And that's what we're doing when we submit our prayer to the Lord. And when we pray uh, in um, the power of the Spirit, in the name of Christ, the authority of Christ, then God's, it gives us that confidence that God has heard us. And if he says no, it'll be for a greater yes. If he says wait, his timing will be perfect. Uh, if he says yes, well, thank you, Lord. That's what I thought should happen. But we don't know anything. Uh, you know, my in-laws, when, uh, you know, the boat people, was it, uh, was it Cambodians, uh, Laotians, some of them, both of those groups uh, had trouble due to communists, you know. And uh, you can picture this for about a year, a family of about a 10 uh, uh, Vietnamese or one of them were living in the uh, basement of my parents' in-laws' house while Elizabeth was still growing up. And uh, it was a hoot. Once a week, they would cook for the bookouts, you know, and there'd be little kids running around with those spring rolls and things like that, you know, and just it was a real great time. But one of the kids one time said something and uh, it caused uh, one of the bookouts to raise their eyebrow and because uh, it was a silly statement. And uh, they said, now, is that so? You know, and, and the father of the house said, 
She is young. She knows nothing. <laughs> They're young. They know nothing. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, we, we, we rejoice when God says, you humans, you don't know nothing. You know, uh, let me veto your prayer request so I can, you, you, don't, you don't get married to the wrong person or do this and that and the other, right? Um, so uh, as it relates to baptism, um, it's the work of Christ on the cross that gives us the, that, that makes something beautifully get pictured when we get baptized. So when you get baptized in the name of Christ, it's representing everything about His authority to save sinners like you and I. And uh, should we just say Jesus, not the other two members of the Trinity? No, because Jesus said, baptize Him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's enough on that. Um, so baptism doesn't save, water baptism doesn't save, faith does, but all believers should want to be baptized as a public testimony of their inward faith in Christ. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So being saved and dwelt and baptized, they then have the Holy Spirit come upon them in an extra way for confirmation. So um, verses 6 and 7, it shows that 12 new gospel warriors are set apart. Now, verse 6 is one of the hardest verses to interpret in the book of Acts. It says, When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And so, entire denominations have been started by taking verses in Acts and using them to insist that what is read here must happen now, even when it would contradict things taught elsewhere in Scripture. And um, from Acts 2.38, some have insisted you have to be baptized to be saved. From this verse, some have insisted that you have to uh, speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not really saved. Others have said there's a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit that's confirmed by speaking in tongues. And early Baptists struggled with this passage another way. Uh, and that was whether this verse meant that the laying on of hands in prayer should happen as part of the baptism experience. So that would mean that after you baptize the person by immersion, you'd bring them back up and immediately lay hands on them and pray for them right there uh, as part of the baptismal service. And some early Baptists did that. Uh, now in a moment we'll explain this verse, but we have an opportunity to stop here and talk about a basic Bible reading principle, and it's a big one. Narrative literature is the record of what happened, and it must be understood in light of clear doctrinal teaching. So narrative literature re reveals the record of what happened. Doctrinal literature reveals what the triune God commands us to believe and act on. Um, very important principle. Think about the Old Testament. Um, there's a man named Japheth. And um, he was a godly man. And uh, he was raised up to be a ruler in Israel. And he... Uh, made an interesting prayer. He said, God, if you give me victory, when I come home, I'll sacrifice the first thing I see. And uh, when he got home after that great victory, what was the first thing he saw? His daughter. Now, some cannot fathom the fact that he would actually sacrifice his daughter. They don't think he did it. But from the context, it looks like that's what he did. Gave her a little time to party with friends and say goodbye, and then uh, that he did that. Now, does that mean that that's a, we ought to, Danny Campbell write a book, The Prayer of Japheth? Jephthah? The Prayer of Jephthah. That was his name, Jephthah. The Prayer of Jephthah. Should Danny Campbell write a book called The Prayer of Jephthah? And, uh, and it record in there that here's where you get power. 
you have pledged to sacrifice the first thing when you get home, no matter what it is, even if it's a family member? No, that'd be a dumb book. Um, but uh, God, God blessed Jephthah, but that does not mean that he did the right thing there. He did kind of a foolish thing there, you know. And there obviously could have been some kind of sacrifice to redeem that child or whatever, you know. And there's no Old Testament law verse that gives any command to do what Jephthah did. And so similarly, the book of Acts records a lot of different things that happen. Some of them are great examples for us, and we should do them. And others, we look and say, is there a doctrinal portion of the Scripture where we're told what to do on this? And uh, it usually gives insight like that. So for instance, Acts 1, we saw they replaced, um, well, they replaced um, Judas uh, and they did it by drawing lots. They had two worthy candidates. They drew lots and the lot decided. Uh, that's probably not how we'll do deacon nominations this year. You know, wouldn't be the worst thing. Hey, we got 20 qualified men. We need six. Let the lots determine it. They're all willing to serve. Let the lots determine it. That'd be okay. But are we mandated to do that? No. We're mandated to pray, trust God, make sure all the leader, potential leaders are qualified, uh, and then uh, we can do it democratically uh, as the, in our church. But in Acts 2, we were told that the first Christian church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching or doctrine. And what that teaching is, is it's taking everything taught in the Scripture and making it understandable now that Christ has completed His work on the cross. Um, and we saw that in John 7, 39. The apostle tells us that that statement Jesus made was about the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, after Jesus was glorified, the Spirit would be received by those who believe. Um, we look back at the Old Testament, we don't see that same thing happening. We don't see the indwelling of the Spirit permanently like we do now that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. Now here's something very interesting. There's a place that Paul gives a complete teaching on what to do with speaking in tongues. And he wrote it during this stay in Ephesus, which is interesting because they had spoken in tongues there. And that place is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And I've written it on the back of your notes there for you to look at later. But um, it's just uh, very interesting how those sections break down. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that this gift of tongues is a gift that some, but not all believers get, that the Holy Spirit gives that gift uh, as He chooses which immediately means it can't be called the evidence of salvation or the evidence that some believers have a, uh, something other believers didn't get because it says it's purely something the Holy Spirit does according to His own uh, will and desire. Um, in chapter 13, he says, I'd rather you have love than the things that divide. And tongues is one of the things he mentions at the front end of that passage. Then he comes back in chapter 14 and he bears down on speaking in tongues. He says things like, he'd rather you speak five words in church people can understand than 10,000 that they can't. He said no more than two or three should speak in tongues when the church is gathered. They should speak one at a time. He says there must be an interpreter present. Uh, if not, keep silent. He said what is said is to be evaluated by scriptures and the censure of the leaders. Everything must be done decently and in order. Now, I've been around speaking in tongues about 30 times in my Christian life. And only twice did I see any effort made to incorporate that clear doctrinal teaching on what should happen if it happens. And that's not even having the discussion about whether it was really just known languages or a heavenly prayer language, right? Uh, because there's an entire case that could be made that every instance in the book of Acts was the ability to speak a language that was spoken somewhere in the world. 
And so, as I always like to tell folks at a moment like this, if you can speak Russian on the docks at Galveston and lead a Russian to the Lord, I'm not going to question your gift. I'm going to rejoice the person got saved, you know. But if you want to interrupt a service with a language nobody can understand and nobody can tell us what you said, then we got a problem, you know. And so, we don't... Uh, go after experiences, we go after fidelity to the scriptures. And that's the same passage where we get the wonderful truth that God wants everything to be done decently and in order. So, now another book that helps us understand Acts 19.6, another thing that helps us understand it, is that the book of Acts, again, it's narrative, it tells us what happened. It's also a transitional time between the old covenant that God made with Israel the reset, you know, Christ has gone back to heaven. It's the beginning of the early church. And so you've got all things uh, coming together in those early days. It's a time of transition. You've got, uh, okay, uh, you got Jewish folks. You got nearly Jewish folks, Samaritans that are kind of half-breed Jewish and stuff like that. How do they get incorporated? Oh, then you got Gentiles who are nothing like Jews, you know. How do they all get incorporated? And so one of the great things God does in the book of Acts, we're kind of in the third movement of his symphony of gospel acceptance, I would call it, uh, where um, you see uh, God incorporating all the people of God into one church, Jew and Gentiles that will come together. And so it's, uh, it's, it's uh, I'm going to read you a long quote here from John MacArthur, but it really tells us what happened here. That this actually occurred likely demonstrated that believers also spoke in tongues here, just as those who received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, as the Gentiles did when they received the Spirit, and those followers of John did. As Samaritans, Gentiles, and believers from the Old Covenant were added to the church, the unity of the church was established. No longer could one nation, just Israel, be God's witness people, but the church made up of Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, and Old Testament saints who became New Testament believers. To demonstrate the unity, it was imperative that there be some replication in each instance of what had occurred at Pentecost with those believing Jews, such as the presence of the apostles, the coming of the Spirit manifestly indicated through speaking in the languages of Pentecost. Now, I said a lot of words there, but what were we saying? People are proud and nitwits, right? We can be nitwits. And if there had not been a second time in Cornelius' house where Gentiles, right after they were saved, spoke in tongues, if there hadn't been this time when these Gentiles here spoke in tongues. We've got other instances of people being saved and that not happening. But this, if, if those had not happened, those Jewish believers from day one would have said, well, we're still more special than all the Gentiles and Samaritans and others that come in. Do you get that? So this really humbled any pride going forward that they were separate classes. You know, Jewish believers and Gentile believers know you're all one in Christ. And because of that, I'm going to give you these temporary manifestations here to show we're all in this together now. And of course, there's several places where people get saved, baptized, nothing like this happens. And so uh, it certainly uh, wasn't uh, normative. All right. So, He tells us again, as we said, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And of course, it doesn't mean they failed to use the Trinitarian baptismal formula. Um, now, what about laying on of hands? Now, I think we ought to pray over people more. It's good to pray over people uh, that have a sick need or, you know, are going off on a mission type thing or something like that. Uh, there's power in prayer, but not as if we could do what the apostles can do, right? We can't. 
Uh, so we pray for the sick. We pray over those being set apart for gospel ministry. But again, in verse 6, he's kind of, Luke here in the book of Acts is kind of conveying. Let's read verse 6 again. And when Paul had laid hands on them, then the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. The men were about 12 in all. A kind of dam had burst for those religious people who were lost. And laying on of hands here, like back when the Samaritans received the Spirit back in 817, again, it's all about their inclusion in the church. So uh, it's not just the speaking in tongues that happens here. It's also another instance of the apostles laying on of hands. And you've got this instance where, okay, the body of Christ is moving forward together. And it's a good, good thing. Here's a quote by a man named Howard Marshall. This was necessary in the case of the Samaritan converts in chapter 8 to make it quite clear that they were accepted fully into the Jewish church centered in Jerusalem. And it was necessary in the present instance to make it clear to these members of a semi-Christian group that they were now being coming part of the Big C Church, the Universal Church. All right. Well... These 12 men joined Paul in reaching Ephesus and the surrounding regions for Christ. And that leads to our last section, verses 8 through 10. Paul's faithfulness leads to what? Fruitfulness, right? Our mission statement here at the Tabernacle. We want to reproduce faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. Paul's faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. Um, he says uh, in verse 8, He went into the synagogue, spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And it's amazing how much that wonderful phrase, kingdom of God, appears. Uh, when Jesus uh, was walking the earth, he said, the kingdom of God is here. Um, and, and, and then um, we're told uh, many places, uh, well, right as Jesus was instructing his disciples before he went back to heaven, it says he spoke to them 40 days pertaining to the kingdom of God. Uh, we're told here and at the end of the book of Acts, Paul was always talking to them about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Just that he's the Lord. He's the ruler. He's the king, right? Uh, Jesus is king, and we're already getting in on his spiritual kingdom, even as we anticipate his physical kingdom to come one day. Um, so this is Paul's longest stay in a synagogue officially recorded. But verse 9 tells us they got that old hardened heart, and the Greek word is always used to defiance against God. So pray for yourself not to have a hardened, hard heart, you know. Uh, but it's one of the things God wants to do is soften our hearts so we'll be open to, uh, to Him and what He has for us and as individuals and as a church family. Uh, truth rejected always leads to a hardened heart, John MacArthur said. Well, Tyrannus may have owned the hall or been the most important philosopher there. It's probably a lecture hall in a gymnasium with people spending leisure time there. And I think about um, you know, how sometimes churches get going. Uh, in a school building or a, a YMCA or something like that, you know. They couldn't meet in the synagogue. They did, couldn't build buildings yet because of persecution. So they met in the Hall of Tyrannus, just a big old place, you know. Think about the tabernacle. Uh, the first, the preacher being in a warehouse, right, and seeing people come to know Christ. Uh, Paul probably taught there during the afternoon break, and he did it for two years. And maybe that's where he made some of his government friends that we read of later. Um, he also went house to house teaching, and so they were having small groups in different houses, like we have Sunday school and stuff. As he reminded the Ephesian elders later, he says, I taught you publicly, I taught from house to house, and the disciples took the gospel all over what is now the modern country of Turkey. Churches were planted in Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, possibly other churches mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia. Uh, Epaphras had a role in this, we read in Colossians, as we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. If we could talk to Paul, we'd say, Paul, 
Was it worth the wait to not to get to go to Asia for three whole years after you wanted to? I think he said it, it was more than worth the wait because of all that God did in Europe and God's perfect timing for these moments we had in Ephesus. He could look back and see God's plan and everything that happened when he was diverted to Europe on that second journey and could rejoice in all that happened after he was finally able to minister in Asia Minor. And so as we close here for the believer, I think this passage is a tremendous reminder to wait on the Lord and to obey God while you wait and don't take any shortcuts. You know, when we take shortcuts that God didn't tell us to take, we oftentimes get into big trouble, sometimes just about waiting on the Lord. I'm chomping at the bit to see harvest nets full, you know, but God's doing something in our lives right now. You know, He's doing something in our families right now, in our church right now, as He gets us ready uh, for the harvest that He's going to send. And of course, for unbelievers, this passage is calling unbelievers not to just try to turn from your sins, but to trust Christ alone for salvation. Because uh, I love how it's so wonderfully shown in the book I'm going to read in January again, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. Uh, on page one, he wants to leave the city of destruction. But it's not till about page 70 in some of the translations of that book that he gets to the cross and the burden of his heart rolls away. He goes up Mount Legality before that. He's interested in making a change in his life, and he tries to do it through human effort, and he just, just falls flat, right? And we need to be on the lookout for not only folks in the tabernacle, but also in the community who they know something's wrong in their life, and they start to try. They say, well, I, I turned my life around. <laughs> and what does that mean? Well, I started going to church, you know. Um, and and, uh, and, and there, if, you, if you listen closely, a lot of folks that go to church, Tabernacle and other places, have a form of religion but have not been born again. They're still trying through self-effort to hope God will accept them, when in reality, nothing they do can have God accept them. He accepts us based on who He is and what Christ has done for us, not our works. But I'm telling you, there's people that come to the Tabernacle, and have come for maybe even years, and in churches in the community that are trying to get to heaven based on being a good enough person and hoping God will accept them. Paul met these people that had been baptized in the baptism of John. They were trying desperately to live a righteous life and do the right things based on what John the Baptist had told them. They were filling it in with human obedience to as much as they could the Ten Commands. And if any of them had died before Paul had got there, they would have gone straight to hell. Because human effort doesn't get us to hell. It might just mean we get less of a judgment, uh, you know, because there's degrees of punishment in hell, you know. Um, then again, the self-righteous person may have one of the worst punishments in hell, you know, according to some of the scriptures about rejection of Christ and His grace in favor of a self-made religion, you know, an inward-looking religion. So just remember that and look for people that even here at Christmas time need to know the rest of the story uh, and make it all about Jesus rather than about just going to church, trying to be a good person, you know. Um, and that's, enough, that's all I'll say about that. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.